0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their Elders, past, present and emerging. Making the choice to study architecture at university is a big one. I don't think it's because it takes at least five years in Australia to graduate with an architecture degree all because architecture is constantly ranked as one of the most intense degrees that you can study. I think it's because so few people have any exposure to what studying architecture is until you actually start studying it. Beyond doing the core coursework, once you start choosing electives that align with your personal areas of interest, studying then becomes a bit like a design-your-own-adventure students that study the courses that align with their own individual interests seem to have a more positive experience studying architecture. Some of these students have even been able to create something that they're engrossed with beyond what is on offer in the available curriculum. I'm Daniel Moore and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Kyle Cinco, Ioana Deleva and Bobby Bailey about how they're approaching their architectural education and what they've done to get the most out of their learning experience. It's no secret that studying architecture is a lot to handle. There's a heavy workload, strict deadlines, and a very steep learning curve, as very few students are exposed to the architecture process before enrolling in an architecture course. This may sound like a complaint every student has about university, but a 2016 study in student engagement at Indiana University found that architecture students work longer hours than every other major. Kyle Cinco is a student at the University of South Australia who started a platform called Successful Architecture Student where students can learn, share and network while they're studying anywhere in the world. It's been a runaway success with over 125,000 followers on Instagram alone. Now that Archi students can use his platform to connect, students are helping each other deal with the high demands of study. All right, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture Podcast. How are you going?
1: Yeah, good. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be here. Love the first season. So I'm glad to actually be involved in this. This is awesome. <laughs> no worries, man. It's really good to have you. So when you're putting together
0: some content on, on any of these platforms that make up successful Archie student, what are you trying to deliver?
1: Mm there's so much we don't learn in architecture school. And I was actually talking to one of my mates from uni in studio yesterday about this. She was saying how I would need like a whole other degree just to figure out this architectural software. And it's like, you don't really learn that kind of stuff in architecture school. And whereas, you know, I'm not trying to crap on architecture school. There's a lot you do learn in architecture school, but because it's very generalized knowledge for, you know, the masses of students that are there, there's a lot of stuff you don't touch on or you don't learn and there's not much specialized knowledge. So I guess my reason then for creating successful Archie soon and creating all this content is to create this library that consistently grows and grows over time as, I, as I'm learning new things, as I interview people that have learned new things to try and combine all that into a platform where it's a place for students to go to learn that stuff that you don't learn in architecture school. Mm. And do you think that with the accessibility of...
0: You know all of these web based platforms. Do you think that all of the podcasting and the videos that you're making, do you think they're a good delivery method or, you know, now a really acceptable delivery method that people previously weren't able to use to actually teach
1: architecture students? Yeah, for sure. And it's like, it's just a massive opportunity in my eyes, anyways. Like, the fact that I mean, like, even with the Hearing Architecture podcast, the fact that people were listening to it from you know, all over Australia, people that I've never met, people that I would never really have the opportunity of meeting, but the fact that you can learn from someone on the other side of the world just instantly on demand on an online platform, that's incredible. And that's something that I feel like even architecture schools could be taking use of, or students could be sharing their knowledge online and then, you know, teaching students from the other side of the world. That's incredible. That's insane.
0: And I mean it's it's a really lovely thing once I started following successful Archie student was seeing how many students' work you actually promote on your feed so you've you, you, have you got people sending you work constantly from all over the world and then and then you're putting it on your feed
1: yeah, students from I couldn't even tell you how many countries, but yeah, it's crazy. Just the amount of students that send me work on Instagram, or they'll email it to me, or they'll you know send me a DM on Instagram, or whatever it may be. You know, they'll just ask, can I have this promoted on your platform and shared with other students so I can get feedback on it and see what people think about it. You know, that's such a cool thing to be able to do to have, I guess, your work showcased to the world and then to get feedback from all walks of life all over the you know the planet doesn't matter where they are, they can give you feedback and you can have different takes on the work you've spent hours and hours producing.
0: And of all of the videos that you make, because you make some videos that show students seven tips to get an HD. <laughs> what led you to, to use those sorts of tips to help students out there?
1: That kind of branch from my interest in you know doing a lot of reading and, and interviewing a lot of I guess, high performance people or like, you know, those students that are getting HDs. And I guess that kind of video stemmed from the idea of that. There's this consistency between HD students and there's this kind of pragmatic way to going about getting HDs. And then it's like, maybe if we just created, you know, a systemized, you know, here's seven tips to getting a HD or whatever it may be hopefully that's helpful to some students and they can either take some things away from that or to think of their own tips or some systems that they can do some habits routines whatever you want to call it and kind of just spark that idea in their mind and when you or when you were putting together those episodes were these
0: tips that were obvious to you i mean are you the hd successful archie student
1: (laughs) that's something i always try to stray away from i I feel like a bit of a misinterpretation with successful Aki student is that, you know, I'm the successful Aki student. I always get HDs, but that's definitely not the case. Um, You know, I'm not a straight HD student. I think there's, well, I, I tend to say that to care about your grades is not necessarily like a great thing. I think you should be more focusing on the lessons that you're learning in your education, actually trying to get better, try new things, all that good stuff. But Yeah, that's definitely not the case. It's meant to be, you know, I want to kind of be transparent with the things that I do and show that not everything goes to plan and you don't have to be perfect, but the fact that you're trying new things and even if you're making mistakes, that's probably, you know, I think I just left a comment on one of my videos today. Someone saying that they've just had a crappy bomb project and they don't know what to do. I've just said if you don't worry so much about that grade you've gotten, but as long as you can take what you can from the mistakes you've made or the failure you've made, I guess most of the best lessons are learnt from failures and mistakes as opposed to the great successes you have. Absolutely.
0: I think sometimes, you know, after a project's been handed in and, you know, the semester's over, sometimes going over the work where you got a credit or a pass, you can get the biggest lessons from going over those things and and actually assessing yourself, oh, what would I have done differently? At what point did things go wrong? Of all of the tips that you've been passing out there, was there one thing that you think is a huge struggle for students to deal with that uh, that you've tried to really take on board?
1: Yeah, I think it's a tough one because there's a lot of things, but <laughs> I think if, if I could like pick one thing that I've found across effective students, I guess I would say, it's I guess they're planning Before even starting anything, you know, it's about understanding the brief, reading through it all, even before the semester starts, just doing your planning of your time scheduling for the whole semester. And what I've been recently preaching on my platform is that, you know, the more time you spend on a project, it directly correlates to the grade you get. So if you're spending more time on a project, you're going to have better grades. And that usually relates to how much you're learning as well. I guess that goes hand in hand with your grade that you get and how much you're learning. Not always the case, but that seems to be some kind of correlation there. Definitely the planning, you know, the 5% of time you spend before a project, just sitting down, planning and organizing your thoughts and then scheduling your time. And then also just a matter of consistently working on a project over the semester.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's, you know, one of the of the boring things that we didn't get into architecture school for, isn't mm. it, <laughs> where we thought that we'd choose <laughs> that to, to do amazing drawings and design amazing buildings. But so much of of the end result can actually come from just sitting down with a calendar at the mm. beginning of the semester and saying, mm-hmm. all right, I need to, need to be diligent about my work hours. Yeah. Mm. So now that you've been doing successful archi student for a while, had there been some responses from your audience that's shown that that all of this work that you're putting in all this extracurricular work has actually paid off
1: yeah there's definitely been i guess some key moments that have been just like this is why i'm doing it this is what keeps me fired up getting those messages you know saying even if it's just something like great video this has just inspired me or this is just you know Turn my motivation around, or something like that. It's just those, I guess, touch points where people are just communicating how it's helped them. So, getting those messages and comments and emails of people and students who have been struggling, and then somehow my videos have, I guess, gotten them back on the right path. That's really, really rewarding and definitely a great feeling. And it, yeah, definitely keeps you going.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, you've taken on extra, extra work when it seems like the amount of, deadlines and the amount of uh, work that's required of students is already so so high and stressful for people how have you been able to manage all of those things
1: so i guess like yeah that is the kind of downside to doing this kind of side hustle thing i guess you could call it but you know i guess you'd call them challenges rather than downsides it's been a lot more challenging trying to balance successful arki student my own university studies as well as you know part-time work and actually now that I think about it when I mentioned those three things that's kind of what I've now had to shape my life around because it's like in that sense I've got three main pillars that I focus my time and attention on you know work studies successful Aki student so it's kind of involved cutting out a lot of things from my life making sacrifices I guess you could say and it's not necessarily a bad thing you know I value my time a lot more now I'm no longer spending hours on you know social media, talking to friends, watching TV or Netflix, and so instead it's kind of like I know that I've got so many hours in a day or a week, so I have to mentally organize my weeks in advance and put time aside for those three things that really matter. It's definitely got a lot to do with you know scheduling and keeping track of time, and you know since I've started successful Aki student, that's been a skill that I've developed and um, I guess gotten better at. I hope, anyways. <laughs>
0: because you've taken this thing on as you know your own personal project have you seen a shift have you seen it get better over time like looking back now over the years because you're a third year architecture student have you seen that growth as well yeah
1: for sure and you know i'm definitely not perfect i don't get straight hds now that i've done this for a little while but there's definitely been a growth you know in my own grades i guess you could say but i think it's the biggest thing is the mindset shift. The fact that I'm probably, if I did this interview a year ago, I wouldn't even be able to talk to you because I was just, you know, such an introverted person and I really didn't have that confidence. But, you know, doing this has given me that confidence. And so where I guess leading back to my university and my education there has been, you know, a boost in my grades and I'm definitely doing a lot better in university now that I'm thinking a lot more about, you know, how I can do better. But, yeah, it's definitely the confidence and there's just so many – I could make a huge list of just all the different benefits to doing it.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, because you've had all of these amazing benefits that you've just mentioned back quite a few years ago, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, most universities would release a magazine or a newspaper that where, where students got to put together – content and also curate what that content would be, can you say that there's there could be a place for, for digital media to be introduced to universities so that students can start producing that kind of content again, but now with a
1: 21st century mm, slant? For sure. I think there's so much benefit to it. Like, I definitely think if there was a school to have a platform like SAS having it student run would be so beneficial to those students as well as the audience, because I think half the benefit is actually, you know, creating the content, learning time management and the networking involved for those hosting the platform. There's also a huge benefit to the audience as well. Like if a school were to just put out videos into forums for students to connect, I think I see a successful Aki student heading with an online library of videos and courses that's just growing and growing to help students choose specifically to them what they want to learn and learn it on demand. Like that'd be insanely helpful for the students of that university, especially if it's run by students as well, because they know what's going on. And, you know, to utilize these platforms of the 21st century, I guess you could say, it's like that's huge. Yeah. And have you found that one particular format of your
0: videos or podcasts seems to be taken up more. And when I say format, I mean a walkthrough of a practical skill or an expose on a person. Are students craving a particular type of format that um, that you're noticing?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. And it's something I definitely do think about a lot. I think the how-to kind of videos and, you know, this is how to do a sectional perspective drawing by hand or whatever it may be. Those kind of videos are definitely what students are craving. And whereas I like to post that kind of mindset stuff and all that, I guess, kind of, you know, these are the good habits to have in routines and these are the things you should think about. Some of those practical things are definitely what students are craving. You know, I can see why, because especially now with, covid and people working from home they are yeah craving this um, what's what's the what they're craving this urge to learn something new and learn some new skills in their free time they i guess are getting this bad feeling of wasting time and you know just sitting at home you know they can't go out with their friends they want to be doing something productive so to have these how to videos or you know even lessons from other architects you know bringing architects onto the podcast and them speaking about their experiences and their tips and advice for students that's definitely what students are wanting and do you think that there's something missing in architectural education that's
0: that's a big opportunity right now
1: yeah i think actually let, let me put it this way cuz like uni sa where i'm studying at they've in my last year introduced an online platform with courses and, you know, this is how to do, I guess I'm trying to think of something on the spot, like an internal uh, render in Revit or something. There's just this whole platform of videos and how to's. And that was extremely helpful because students were looking to the teachers for all this information on how do I do this? How do I do this? And the teachers don't necessarily know every single thing. And that's, you know, not something they need to know because they've got their own ways of doing things and their own unique styles. But the fact that the universities could have this library of courses and videos that are specific to students, rather than tailoring their content to a hundred student cohort, try to get it more specific to students through these individual learning platforms. I think there's definitely opportunity there. So if, uh, do you mean, if all of the
0: Curriculum that student that architecture specific students need to get, so that they're you know qualified as a as an architectural graduate. It could be good if students could pick and choose the different courses to to fill in all of those criteria.
1: Yeah, I think yeah, it's sort of like in the idea of having electives and you can choose your own path. Because university for me so far has been a lot of just learning on our own. You know, we go to university and we get our critiques, but then it'd be going home and learning everything for ourselves anyways. But for the universities to take a part of that from home learning, I think that's where the direction they could go in. So university could be used as an an
0: introduction to what they'd like you to learn and then you can go home and choose your own story, choose your own path within that library to deliver on a brief. Yeah, it's a great way
1: to say it. Choose your own story. I love that.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's. It seems like with uh, what's happening with coronavirus, some universities might be opening themselves up to to those sorts of ideas. So, yeah, it uh, could be a possibility. And yeah, it seems like you're on the forefront of of showing how it potentially can be done. So, yeah, it's really wonderful seeing yeah seeing seeing what you're putting together. Um, yeah, no, thank you so much, Kyle, for joining us on the the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's been really really wonderful talking to you about uh, yeah what you've what you've created on your own and how you're sharing it with everyone. So, yeah, if anyone hasn't listened to Successful Archie Student or followed it on Instagram or watched the videos on YouTube, I strongly recommend you give it a go. Um, Thank you so much, Kyle, for joining us, and we're looking forward to seeing more of your work in the future.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Dan. I really appreciate this opportunity as well, and I love what you're doing with the podcast, and keep going. Cheers, mate.
0: As we've started to hear, studying architecture doesn't have to purely rely on coursework. After being involved in a design and build design studio, a group of students at Monash University wanted to use their skills to help the community before they graduated. They established a group called Forum that shares an interest in social engagement and collaborative design. They have started working on real projects while they are still undergraduates, where they're able to show community groups the benefits of working with graduate architects at the beginning of their careers. Joanna Deleva is one of the members of Forum, and she shares her experience about being able to use her architecture skills and training on real-world design projects. All right, Joanna, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's really great to have you on board. How are you going?
2: Thanks for having me. I'm really good.
0: So you're one of the members of Forum, uh, which started at Monash University. For the people out there who might not know, it can be a little bit difficult for students or graduates to do the work that some architects might be doing. But you guys are doing some really, really interesting collaborative work with uh, primary school groups, aren't you?
2: Mm, It's interesting that you say that. I think personally... One of the best and most challenging things about studying architecture is that I, I've left feeling with this sense of immense agency. I feel like I can really impart something in, onto my environment. And I feel like we all felt like that a little bit. So, in, in some way, it wasn't difficult at all. So, when I came into the group, I remember I wasn't at all shocked. I just felt like, oh, yeah, of course you're doing this thing. And of course I'll join. So, it felt easy and seamless. And we would love for anyone listening also to feel like they can join us, um, on this journey. Um, the work with children, it is super interesting. We're, we're hyper-conscious of the fact that, um, we don't know anything actually, like we have almost no experience. And there's something amazing about working with children because even if you had a, a world of knowledge and you'd been practicing for, For decades, there's something about children that's just sort of impervious to any sort of agenda or intent. Or maybe not intentions are good, but maybe motives. You know, you can't come in and and run workshops with children with some sort of um, motive or agenda at hand. So it was really suitable for us, and I would really recommend it to any sort of spatial practitioner.
0: Right. So I guess um, there might be a lot of grads or students who who leave or um – who are studying architecture and then want to do the work that, that you're talking about. You know, they want to really get involved with the community and they've got that agency to actually use these skills that they have now. And you mentioned that you do workshops. So tell us a little bit about what what you actually do when you come into the schools.
2: Um, it's important to note actually that the, the projects start way before our engagement with the community groups that we work with. We consider each and every single one of our meetings as a sort of mini project. So, from the very outset it's it's just us having a conversation there's a lot of back and forth we remain as open minded as possible we chase a lot of unknowns and we try and be really open to you know our vulnerabilities or our concerns going into these community groups so there's a huge particularly with the kids you'd be surprised how long our conversations are in trying to determine how to engage with them because like i said we're not looking for a motive or an agenda to achieve we just need to create a sort of platform where they can explore and play, and uh, really just a way of finding a, a means to record, you know, what eventuates of those workshops. That's really our right. main role.
0: Right. So, as you kind of introducing um, children to design thinking, is that part of what your w- Certainly. work forum does? Yeah, and
2: mm. also to learn from them a little bit about how they engage with their environment.
0: Because mm, it must be really interesting talking to children and actually hearing once you start talking about. Something that is built and something that gets used by people, and after it's been built, that when you open up that conversation, their perspective, like you said, it must be really unique. Have you have you experienced any, you know, real real interesting <laughs> perspectives from the from the children when you start to work with them?
2: Oh, for sure, they are so entirely themselves. They're their own little people, and they've got their own. Interests and yeah, they seize their environment fiercely and engage with it so unselfconsciously. Um, and again, it's that idea of mutual learning as well. Be, there isn't actually all that much talking involved often, there's a lot of play, a lot of play theory. Involved and doing and recording that process, which is really important, and it's I guess a talent that you learn studying architecture—the ability to document and record your environment.
0: Yeah, and so with this play theory that you're talking about, how does how does that factor into the work that that you're doing?
2: I just think it's something that adults could learn a lot from. Um, one of our members is actually doing quite a bit of research on on play theory and with children in particular and how we can learn from that also. So it isn't just about helping them understand their environment or how to partake in it, but also helping adults understand how we can better engage more organically and fluidly and and unselfconsciously.
0: Absolutely. Well, speaking of the organic, one of your projects is a sensory garden. Do you want to tell us about that project and what that
2: involves for the kids? Yeah, that one's been... Um, I guess one of the benefits of being a volunteer group is that we work quite slowly. So there were a few workshops at the school and a few workshops amongst us at Forum, and that's still a very much an ongoing project. And there's a beauty to that because we can continuously engage with them and yet yeah, tease out the project more and more. So it's only partially built so far. We've got a, a sort of unconventional shop front that we co-designed with the kids in of various sort of round-robin workshops. The idea is that they will actually infill most of the sensory elements themselves, so we're really just providing the armatures or the parameters for them to be able to inform their own environment. When they get back to school, when that happens.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, of course. So does that mean that you're setting up a framework or sort of garden beds and then the students come in and add plants and artwork or things like that to to a garden?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, We've got a timber structure of sorts like this armature and they'll go in and and then fill it with art and insect hotels or uh, whatever they've got planned. Um, so the teachers are also a big part of it, and they'll be involved. Um, the principal and future students, so it'll be a, a longer project. Wonderful.
0: And so another project that you're working on was upscale or well, the upscale 2020 brief. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that project? Because that sounds like it was a really huge undertaking.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was. I think it's probably one of my favourites. It was interesting being approached we were approached essentially to write a brief, which seemed entirely counterintuitive for Forum because a brief, you know, is essentially a series of instructions that you sort of pass down hierarchically to someone to then follow. And that's certainly not how Forum operates at all. That's not our agenda. So from the outset, we had to entirely redefine what a brief could be. And we knew it had to be a collaborative process with the the various sonar representatives from around Australia. So, yeah, we, we ran a workshop with Forum, so just us to understand the themes that we had been given provided with for that year, had a particular theme. And then we wrote a workshop for the representatives to run through and there was actually very few members present there, so it was almost like this type of remote experience even before it became a essential. And then we came back with that. It, so it became a really sort of a recursive process where it's, we slowly started teasing out the agendas or the, where we wanted to go with um, the themes that we were presented with.
0: Okay. And then what was the brief used for?
2: Yes. Yeah, so Upscale is an event that Sona runs annually. It's supposed to be a design build, uh, so it was quite a curveball when um, we all started working remotely. So then the brief was handed back to each of the representatives in each of the states, and they tweaked it slightly to suit their state. So that was also a benefit of having forum because we created that flexibility in the brief.
0: Right So does that mean it was a nationally coordinated event?
2: Yeah, so it was a real privilege to be sort of the nucleus of it here in Victoria.
0: Wow and and what was the end result? What did the students have to design?
2: So it had to do we obviously embraced the pandemic. It had to do with renewal, so they were imagining what it would be like after this pandemic and how we can reconnect, and it was up to them to determine what sort of community groups they were interested in establishing that reconnection with, Uh, and yeah, it went ahead. We were very pleased that it worked out. They had over 200 participants, which is really promising.
0: Wow, that's huge. Yeah, yeah it's, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how we're designing in the future in a post-coronavirus world or maybe just the coronavirus world from now on. <laughs> so the work that you're doing is really unique uh, at Forum. And I think when students are studying architecture or they've graduated architecture, there seems to be kind of a, a fixed path. Students or graduates have to be on. You know, you go to university for a set number of years, and then you've got to work at a firm for a while. How did you balance the work that you're doing at Forum with other work that you're doing at the moment? I
2: work four days a week in practice, and I'm also just started tutoring. I think the balance is easy when it, the cause feels super important. I think in general, not just among students, but I think in the industry, there's this sensation. There's a bit of a, a crisis of relevance an architecture, perhaps, and there's a need to to reinvent the way that we are engaging with space and society.
0: Yeah, like if we're in this mode of thinking at the moment that there's a crisis of relevance, where do you think that breakdown is in, in relevance?
2: Maybe it has to do with this, there's a loss of sort of social ambition and the world is increasingly, you know, bureaucratic, there's stifling regulations and our ability to connect truly and to understand is hindered. And that's kind of our duty a little bit. If we're going to inform other people's environments and we have to have some capacity to understand other people and understand those environments. That's my opinion, at least. That's, I think, a bare minimum that architecture should offer.
0: Absolutely. I mean, if architecture is meant to be for everyone and architecture is meant to engage with and be for the community, there should be a connection between architects and the community and and being able to have architectural conversations beyond just architectural boundaries. Yeah, yeah. So with the work that you're doing, I mean, you do a lot of co-design. I mean... It feels like there's there's some good and bad of, of co-design ideas in out there in the community. Um, how do you feel like you're managing that?
2: Yeah, it is a little bit of a buzzword, isn't it? There was um, a meeting that we had early on where one of the agenda items was to discuss the sort of terminology we wanted to use moving forward, maybe to write a mission statement or even just to discuss forum. And we talked a lot about co-design and this, this term. It's quite a buzzword. I feel like it's been a, it's a little bit bastardised in a way. There's this impression of, um, you know, that, the architect or the spatial practitioner is this operating as this sort of unbiased facilitator or an impartial mediator and this sort of false utopia that's presented by this word. So I guess it's not really a misconception. It's a, a really valid concern and we want to work through that as well because you know, facilitation, it still insinuates ideas of, of expertise and expertise then inevitably translates into a sort of authority. And then it's not the sort of flat hierarchy that you're trying to achieve to work collaboratively with people. So you need to, I think we try to be as honest as possible and oscillating between being hyper honest about the fact that we do have some expertise, but also we try and place ourselves in a state of vulnerability where we also are honest about the fact that we, like I said, don't, actually know all that much and we're just feeling things out ourselves as as recent graduates for the most part. Some of us are still studying. So yeah, it's important.
0: Yeah. I mean and it's it I think that's it's a really good point in that there's there's some downsides to the idea of the hero architect who comes in and, and can sort of tell everyone what the solution to their problems are. And um, yeah, if we're able to to break down some of that authoritarian role and actually being more collaborative and, and yes, listening and letting the other people lead at exactly the same level as the architects, then that can really help.
2: Mm. Yeah. I think actually this idea of problem-solving is perhaps one of the problems, and it's something that, again, if you identify a problem, it begins to privilege the expert with the solution. So rather I think a Forum we try and seek a sort of a sense-making rather than a problem-solving and that really helps us flatten that hierarchy. But yeah, we're still feeling it out, still figuring out tips and tricks to sort of avoid these common tropes of, of uh, architecture
3: being an architect.
0: Yeah, well, that's. It sounds like it's a really lovely arrangement to have when you, especially when you're going into schools to to do some of these workshops. Is that you have yourselves, you've got the children, and then you also have the teachers, so that you've got three different perspectives to communicate with and to be surprised by. That must be a huge part of the projects in themselves that everyone can bring something brand new to the project and can make it really unique. Whereas if we just had that uh, leading hero architect position, then you might start to see repetition because a person in that role might think, well, I've seen this before, this is the solution here. Definitely.
2: It also really helps that we as a collective within forum are all extremely different individuals. So so we we come together in Forum to work collectively. But now as graduates we've gone very separate ways. And yeah, we all bring a really different perspective. And we really value that. Some people have, you know, interests in engineering and whether in business or in consultation work. Yeah. Mm. So it's really diverse.
0: Absolutely. Well I think that must be a really incredible seeing your architectural knowledge and your architectural education being used at a, a school. Have you seen some specific examples of how your experience at Forum has started to to work back the other way, like you said, in, in architecture practice or consultation or, or in the other jobs that people from Forum are now doing?
2: Mm, definitely. I think personally it goes back to what you were saying. You, you feel like there's this rigid structure or order to the way things have to be and if it wasn't for forum i think i'd fall into a bit of nihilism about that that's just sort of the inevitable state of affairs and be a bit lackluster but forum sort of gives me personally the sort of optimism to feel like there's change so even if things aren't the way they should be or the way that we might want them to be there's always room to fight for the things that you believe in or what you're interested in or just voice an opinion that you think is valid
0: Yeah. The style of education that architects go through when you when you're studying architecture at university is very very unique to the profession and maybe that's why there are so many firms who operate in a similar kind of way. Were there any firms or research that you did that influenced you to want to to seek this type of work out?
2: It it has been interesting forms evolved quite a lot since its conception. We actually had Peter Elliott um, come and speak to Forum about some of his earlier work, and that was really inspiring. But um, we actually realized that his earlier work was relevant to us when we presented at NAM alongside him. So, yeah, that's also one of the beauties of Forum that it's such a fluid platform and we haven't married ourselves to any sort of mission statement. But yeah, so some of his earlier work was um, very political, and he was interested in, in breaking apart some of the paradigms around you know, spatial practice and he also worked with children so we had that in common yeah there's a lot of people that had that same itchiness that we did after graduating
0: and did you continue that conversation with Peter Elliott after you presented at NAM?
2: yeah so we asked him to come and talk a lot more in depth about those specific points those earlier his earlier work so obviously his career has been quite illustrious now and it's got a lot more to talk about now, but we wanted to hear about that earlier, that sort of youthful, curious, eager side of him that sort of started his career and how he paved his way. That was interesting to hear.
0: It's, uh, yeah, unless people sort of do a bit, a bit more of a deep dive into Peter's work, they might not know that he that he did that type of work. And with Forum, because it started off as a group of people who are still students and now most of you are graduates, I believe, or are, they, are there still students who are part of Forum?
2: There certainly are, yes. Yeah, we've met people all along the way that have joined along and they're still studying. Some are doing double degrees, um, so they aren't exclusively working in architecture. Um, that's really important to us also to, you know, get outside of the bubble. It is a bit of a bubble, isn't it? Um,
0: (laughs) It definitely feels like, uh, (laughs) yeah, it's a bit of an echo chamber sometimes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, So that's part Mm. of that idea of being able to understand, you know, your environment and your community. Um, It's important to branch out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And where do you think Forum might head after, you know, the next couple of years?
2: After everyone probably graduates. That's an interesting question. I think it'd be even more interesting to try and maintain that naivety that I was talking about, to continue chasing things that we don't have experience with and to find ways to, to operate with those community groups or in those environments. So it will always be this endeavor to to branch out, no matter how much we expand in our own practices or how much we've learnt, it will always be a desire to, to seek new learnings or new ways, new, reframe the way that we work.
0: Mm. Oh, fantastic. All right, Joanna. well, it was absolutely wonderful getting to speak to you and hearing more about Forum. Thanks, Daniel. I hope you all the best in the future and it was, it's really lovely to hear about the work that you're doing with schools and uh, with younger, younger architects and younger architectural practitioners around the country. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
0: Another student who decided to set their own course through architecture education is our next guest, Bobby Bailey. When Bobby and her partner Owen felt there was a gaping hole in their education about Australian architecture, they decided to ride their bikes from the east to the west coast of the Australian continent for 10 months documenting the architecture they found through a strict process at 19 predetermined stops. Travelling by bikes was integral to their journey because it forced them to go slow at the pace of nature and to have no choice but to notice things at the human scale. Along the way, Bobby and Owen were exposed to the unique ways buildings have been shaped by the landscapes that they occupy. All right, Bobby, thank you so much for joining me today on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going?
3: Yeah, doing very well. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me on board.
0: Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much for joining us. You've taken a very unique approach to your architectural education. Can you tell me a little bit about what you got personally out of this?
3: To be honest, I will be learning the values of this trip for the rest of my life. So, you know, it's just been a few years now. So I think one of the the main lessons we started to have very early on was the realisation of When we're taught architecture and we're practising architecture here on the coast in these offices, it's kind of believed to be such a sole pursuit that kind of you have this architectural um, intention and, you know, you have to carry out your vision. But in going across and seriously sitting down with communities and understanding people's stories and landscape stories and then how the architecture is a reflection of that, it made us realise how much more community focused architecture has to be to be valued in a community, not by just, you know, maybe a wealthy client, but the entire community. And then the important and valued role over generations that those buildings can be playing in those places. Yeah, and that I think only then can architecture have that greater reach to more people who can't afford architecture or don't know what architects do or can do to improve their life. So, yeah, I think that was a really, really big realisation for us in to just kind of, you know, it's not always about us as architects. It's about the people in the place that it's embedded in and it's more important for them to be a part of it than for you know the architectural intention often
0: yeah i can totally understand that at university we are learning from architects mostly and architectural academics um and then when we get into practice and we start to talk to clients and people who use buildings who might, might want to adapt their buildings that's a whole different conversation can you tell us a little bit about some of the conversations that you started to have when you got to speak to some of the people across australia and in the different countries around australia that was revealing the different experiences that people were having
3: yeah yeah absolutely and i think it reflects that you know if architecture is not grounded in reality then there is a limited potential to make change and in some of these towns where we kind of would cycle into and say oh you know we're, we're doing this Architectural kind of investigation across the country, and we want to you know talk to you about the buildings you live in and your history in living here and they're like um, sorry, what's an architect <laughs> 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 or like what do, what what do you mean by architecture? you mean like the sheds or <laughs> just kind of have no idea and you know then in and then, in one of these places where we we were there for the week duration where we would interact with community members we'd kind of go out to their farms and see their sheds or their houses and go to the local museum and learn about the history and talk to as many people we could and document buildings and then at the end of that week we would always hold an exhibition explaining our findings and give our work back to the town as then a resource they could use and one of the the local elders in this town who was amazing in our experience there he said uh, at the end of our exhibition, oh, I didn't know that's what architects did. I didn't even know you could talk to them. So, you know, <laughs> just changing these perceptions of people in the possibilities that architecture and architects could bring to their lives was a big realisation for us that, you know, we, just, we need to kind of get rid of those fancy words often and just have a good conversation with people about their lives and the houses they live in and the built culture of the place.
0: Yeah, because it sounds like a lot of the research that you were doing, it was looking at the architecture in the absence of architects and the practical way people deal with buildings and i guess a lot of the differences that you might see on your journey would be a, a huge response to climate and location
3: yeah and and that was what was so incredible in the absence of architects really what the buildings do is they fundamentally respond to where they are and they're built of materials appropriate and accessible in that place. So they were the biggest lessons for us. You know, it's quite interesting. We thought we would get this massive variation across Latitude 25, which was the date and we followed through Uluru. But really there wasn't a huge amount because the climate doesn't vary much across that. But you often did see variations, not so much in kind of what a shed looked like, but yes, in what it was made out of, what its role was, because of what was available there in that place. You know, the desert, the architecture of the desert, is quite different from the gold fields in Western Australia or the east coast of Queensland. And, And how would they differ? It was often in how they would respond to the climate of that place. So you might have those kind of micro climates in that place and having different weather patterns there. So it might just be in how how big awnings are or kind of how much wall is covered or not covered to let in breeze or stop breeze or kind of hunker down on those cold desert nights. But I think there were some really incredible, notable examples for us which really did I think, influence our thinking. So an example of a building that didn't work and it kind of is something that pervades across Australia is a donga, which is essentially a transportable, and they pervade inland Australia. Um, They're everywhere. And what's, you know, they're, they're kind of cheap, nasty things that get poured in and they're made of products, not materials and they have a max lifespan of 20 years or so and just kind of have this extractive mentality of places. And so they're brought in from a foreign place and kind of chucked into a location and expected to work well, and of course they don't. Yeah, and then I guess in contrast to that, the best example of a building that we did come in contact to was the Adelaide House in Alice Springs, which is an incredible reflection of it, how it works for its context. And it's so appropriate for the place in that it has this really well-shaded thermal mass, incredible underground evaporative air cooling systems, which would pull air under the house and through wet hessian, sucked up through it through capillary action, and then had kind of extensive air conditioning systems all through the interior walls to pull air through and then out up through the ceiling.
0: So you're talking about a lot of systems that sound pretty advanced. Is this a new building? I mean, when you say Hessian, is it quite an old building?
3: Yeah, exactly. So I think um, Adelaide House was built in early 1900s. So there are these incredible examples of buildings in Australia. And that's what we were trying to uncover of getting those lessons to start to be incorporating more passively into our buildings today, rather than relying so much on these mechanical ways for a building to work in these places.
0: It's, it's just incredible to think that back in the early 1900s, people were solving so many building issues with, with simple materials and some some passive systems. So yeah, it's incredible that you found, you know, the Adelaide House doing these these amazing passive things. Was there another building in, in a different state other than South Australia where you found an amazing example of of a building working with its natural climate?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And um, this one came from Windora in Queensland, which was our eighth stop on the Grand Section out of 19 stops. And um, one thing that we carried with us in the entire journey was Paul Memmott's book, Ganya, Gundi and Worley, The Indigenous Architecture of Australia. And so when we would come to these places, we would try and open up Ganyagundin Worley and look at that history of the architecture of of the place, starting with the Indigenous architecture. And sometimes we were lucky enough to have examples of Indigenous architecture of that place to start our thinking and knowledge of the history of the built environment there. And we were lucky enough in Windora to have found an example in Mehmet's book of the Indigenous architecture of that place, And it was really incredible. So, you know, it it does get quite cold in Windora in the wintertime at nighttime, but still very hot in that West Queensland area. So this particular structure, it was made out of sticks clad in mud on the inside and outside to create a hard shell. And then the occupants would light a fire on the inside to heat up that thermal mass and rake it out before they went to bed. So it would radiate back in on them. Mm. Yeah, incredible, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh and then in our uh, documentation of the buildings there today when we were there because when we would not only document in terms of kind of do a measure up drawing but also collect temperatures and anecdotal data of how those houses were performing and the best performing in Windora in a town was a pisa house made out of rammed earth from the early 1900s and You know, it it kind of used these exact same principles as an Indigenous architecture. And so for us, that commentary on the lineage of materials was so important and a realisation that, okay, we need to start going back and looking back even a bit further to see where that material application first started in those places in terms of the buildings. It was really inspiring.
0: Yeah, I think it feels a little bit like, uh, you know, how I feel about when I was in primary school growing up, we learned a lot more about American history than we did about Australian history. Thinking back to my time at university, we spent a lot of time looking at international architecture and far less time talking about Australian architecture and even or especially Indigenous architecture we I think we might have spent one lesson on. Do you think that there is a lot that we should be looking more into with Indigenous architecture and Indigenous systems for construction and also for living passively?
3: Most definitely, most definitely. I think there is a really large lack of content on Australia's built history and they're kind of reality of Australian architecture, both Indigenous architecture, colonial architecture, and then the more contemporary architecture. And um, I think, yeah, so often in our architectural degrees, we learn of these really beautiful and incredible precedents, but they're kind of in these international settings and in a very different climate. You know, Australia is a dry seed habitat continent world and we look at these, you know, beautiful places but with very different climates so perhaps it's not the best place to be taking lessons from in you know thinking about architecture and learning about architecture here in Australia
0: yeah so what are you going to do with the information from the grand section is this something now just for you to reflect on personally or is it something that you're going to try to send out there into the architectural community
3: yeah it's a it's a really good question that one so um we uh, are writing a book still kind of uh, writing a book of all of our lessons and the process and our findings from the grand section so we hope that you know we can pass that on to students and make it open source as much as possible, you know, starting to create this roadmap of these really incredible precedents that we can start thinking about across Australia. And we are trying to incorporate that then into our practising of architecture and so we, you know, have found that it's really important to kind of become very community focused and that the place that you need to start with is the site and, you know, have this really kind of deep interrogation of the site and all that constitutes it from the climate to materials which do and don't work in already built examples, you know, anecdotal data of the history of the place, the ecology and all of these things which make up the place. So to create buildings which, are, which become resources for the place and the people of that community and they're connected and they enhance that connection to the landscape and that history of the place. And we're we're trying really hard to think about, you know, how architecture can have a greater reach and not just service the wealthy of the community. So thinking, well, you know, how can we change the the obsession with built culture as architects and start to think innovatively about the application of architectural thinking to kind of service and benefit these people and communities on, on their kind of outskirts of where, you know, architects generally practice in architecture is built so yeah we're we're doing kind of a few different things and one of those is actually building a house that we've designed so we've been able to practically take that process we established on the grand section and we found worked really well in in interrogating the place and the people and then now we're trying to see how we can actually put that into a process of creating architecture. So we're our own dummies on this one. So we're <laughs> seeing seeing <laughs> how it's going and, and it's proving really, yeah, really beneficial and really interesting to to be starting with with those different ideas as the fundamentals to creating a building.
0: Oh fantastic. Just to give us a little introduction, what are you trying to introduce into this new process for making architecture that you've learnt from the grand section?
3: Yeah, so the first thing we did, because what we found of so much value on the grand section was that very slow approach to a town and kind of, as I said earlier, by the time you arrive in a town you already understand the landscape, its climate and kind of what a building fundamentally has to respond to and do to be comfortable for its inhabitants and then that slow departure of a place so then you kind of also understand the entire context buildings in that place exist in and whether it's the same as the next or the same as the last and so we've um, taken that process and what we did was we walked for three days up to this site and as we did on the grand section documenting our observations documenting buildings which exist and materials which do and don't work and then having that weak analysis in the place where that where the site existed and doing again that that kind of understanding the history the landscape collecting anecdotal data of that place and then that kind of walk away three days from that place and so even just by the time that you start to design the building you have a very deep understanding of what the building needs to do and so it's it's not just about the aesthetic kind of values you you or the client are trying to achieve you know fundamentally and you have this kind of checklist of arguments of what the building has to do so that was the first process that we've kind of embedded in which has been you know really interesting to try to put into the process and convince clients that it's an important thing to do
0: <laughs> absolutely yeah so after going through all of these amazing experiences now what sort of advice would you give to someone who's feeling a little bit cooped up in their university and wanting to make their own way or create their own path in the way that they learn architecture? You know, what, what advice would you give to these people who want to break the mould a little bit?
3: <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I think it's really important for students to realise that they are allowed to step out of that constructive learning environment and take learning into their own hands and impose their own agenda on what they want to get out of their, their learning environment and their degrees. You know, I think that's what universities are there for. They're there to, to challenge you and to support you kind of in these different pursuits that you want to undertake and that students, they, you know, they can fill the gaps which they think exist in a myriad of ways. You've just got to just believe in yourself that you're capable and, and you can get up and you can do it and that it will be worthwhile.
0: Wonderful, Bobby. Well, that was so lovely hearing about the approach that you've taken to your learning of architecture. And it sounds like so much great stuff is coming out of it. Is there a website for the Grand Section that people can visit so that they can learn more about your journey?
3: Yes, absolutely. It's um, www.thegrandsection.com. So it's not too hard to find.
0: <laughs> Great. All right. Well, for anyone out there who's interested in learning more about the grand section and what Bobby and her partner have been finding out on their amazingly unique journey learning architecture, you can visit visit that website and check it out. All right, Bobby, thank you so much for giving us some of your time and we hope everything goes well on your on your built project. And we look forward to hearing some more from you in the future.
3: Thank you so much, Daniel, and thanks again for having me on board.
0: This has been episode six of season two of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favorite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Kyle Cinco, Joanna Deleva, and Bobby Bailey for their contribution to architecture education, the student community and the profession as a whole. The interviews in this season were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members, Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Voles, Hugh Michaelmore, Chris Morley, Victoria Clarkson, Lily Fong, Tanya Benagala, Jess Beaver, Dylan Gordon, Vaughan Cockburn, Kalina Sparks, Tom McKenzie and James Goffwin. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.